This is the Horse Radio Network. Welcome to the Leadline Podcast, the show where we believe that running your own horse business should feel less like a chore and more like the life you've always dreamed of. Join us as we share valuable advice on how to become more focused, more organized, and more profitable in your horse business. And now, here's your host, Mandy Flanders. Hello, and welcome back to the Leadline Podcast. I'm your host, Mandy Flanders, and in today's episode, we're going to be talking all about side hustles for equestrians. Whether you are currently running your horse business as a side hustle, or perhaps you've been on the lookout for additional ways to boost your main source of income, there's a lot of different side hustles out there. So today, I've invited four different horsewomen with varying backgrounds and stories onto the show to share a little bit about their side hustles and how you, the listener, can follow in their footsteps if you're looking to make a few extra bucks in the coming future. So let's dive in. We're going to go ahead and meet our guests one by one. Hi, ladies. How's everyone doing today? Great. Great. Awesome. Awesome. (laughs) Well, let's kick things off by meeting each of you. We're going to go one by one, starting with Ashley. So if you could just share your full name and where you're from. My name is Ashley Peterson, and I am from Southern Minnesota. Hi, everyone. I'm Gwen Roberts, and I'm from Asheville, North Carolina. Hey, y'all. I'm Madison Tillman, and I'm from Georgia. And I'm Sally Batten from Plymouth, New Hampshire. Awesome. Well, thank you all for being here. I'm so excited to dig into what each of your side hustles are because they are all so different. And my hope today is that we inspire other equestrians to go out there and, you know, if they're looking to make a little extra money, give them some ideas for how they can do that. So we're going to go through each of your side hustles one by one and kind of unpack what it is that you do. And okay, let's be honest. First and foremost, horses are expensive. So making a little extra money on the side is never a bad thing. A worst case scenario, you have extra money for more horse things, right? So all right, let's kick things off with Ashley. Ashley, you work full time as an assistant supervisor in the radiology department at your job, but you have an equestrian side hustle. And we were talking a little bit about it on Instagram, and I thought you'd be a great fit for the show today. So why don't you go ahead and kick things off, kick off the show here and tell us a little bit more about what it is that you do. Thank you, Mandy. It's really fun to be a part of this. I've listened to probably almost all of the episodes and you glean a lot of really great information from all of the guests you have. So I hope your listeners can get a lot of information from all of us. So my side hustle is... I do braiding and banding, mostly at AQHA shows. I've also done some paint shows. And then in Minnesota, we have a really big open show circuit. And so I also do some braiding and banding at those shows. Talk to me a little bit more about how one can get started in this. I'm not someone who shows. I'm a very casual trail rider. So I don't know a lot about braiding and banding. But if someone said, hey, Mandy, you can make some extra money going out and doing this, like I'd be down. I'd be down to go braid manes and tails. So (laughs) tell me a little bit more about how this became something that you wanted to do on the side and how you started making money at it. Sure. So I showed open shows growing up and it's something that I saw other riders, you know, they'd have their horses main either braided or banded. And growing up, we always did banding. And now I mostly do braiding. And so they're the small little braids 
they're called hunter braids and there's different styles, but you know, in a main, there's anywhere from probably 40 to 60 braids. Um, they're very small, a couple inches in length. And so that was something that I saw I liked. And I'm not one that's going to pay someone else to do something that I could attempt to do myself. So I just started practicing on my own horses. And, you know, then it was kind of like at the shows, people would see that I do it. And they'd ask if I do others. And starting out, I didn't, uh, mainly because I needed much more practice. And then from there, it just kind of once I got more confident and my braids got better, then I started advertising at some of these shows. And I'm talking this was before Facebook. So I would just literally post a flyer at the horse show saying, hey, at the time I was just doing braiding, braiding services available with my number, my contact info, and when I was available. And then from there, at least in my region, you have a lot of repeat customers and it's mostly word of mouth. So a lot of people, I do their horses at, you know, several of the shows I go to, or they'll reach out and say, hey, I'm looking for a braider for this show, that show, are you going to be there? And um, the braiding community in the Midwest, I feel like works really well together of I'm full, but here's who you should talk to. They might have openings or I'm not going to be at the show, but I know so-and-so is reach out to them. So then it's just kind of word of mouth. And then of course, Facebook um, is a terrific tool for getting the word out. There's a few groups available where people will post different shows and that they're looking for someone to braid. So I do belong to a few of those. Usually, honestly, at the shows when I'm working, there will be people that pop by and say, hey, do you have time for one more? <laughs> or do you have room, you know, to do head, two head tomorrow morning? I'm typically never short of business at the horse shows. I love that. And because you've been doing it since before Facebook, it sounds like you really leaned into that word of mouth factor, which is awesome. So let's talk a little bit about what this looks like for someone who is interested in starting to braid and doing it as a side hustle. Where do you learn how to braid manes or band manes, either or, when you're first starting out? I have to give props to the braiding community because when I first started, people were not as open to sharing the information as they are now. And so I think people have grown a lot. The industry has shown that there's a need and there's not enough people to do it. And so I think braiders have come a long way with, I mean, for me personally, I wouldn't be doing this as successfully as I am without the help of other braiders that have shown me tips and tricks and have referred me. And you can't do it without that. And so I, for someone that is just getting started, first of all, I would say you've got to practice and practice and practice. And then once you think you're good, then you got to practice more. And that can be on your horses or better yet, find other horses to practice on because I found that I could do a really nice job on my horse's mane, but my horse's mane isn't the same as someone else's horses. And so you kind of have to have a lot of experience with different types of manes and not all horses stand good. So you got to practice on horses that maybe don't stand perfectly still. Um, because that's another challenge. But I would say to actually learn how to do the actual braiding, there's some great YouTube videos out there. There are some Facebook groups that have some really good information, pictures. If you know someone that braids, even myself, reach out to me and say, hey, I'm interested in getting started. 
where do I start? And I would say just with, you know, YouTube it. I mean, nowadays, of course, YouTube everything. Reach out if you know someone locally, that would be really good. Ask them if they would be willing to teach you. It's going to take some time and a lot of practice, but I think establishing that, you know, if you're going to be taking up someone's time, make sure you're serious about it and that it's something, you know, you've looked into and this is what you want to do and get better at. And then just practice, practice, and then reach out to those same people after you've been doing it a while and say, hey, this is where I'm at, or I want to make this part better. How do I do that? Could I send you a video and have you critique it? I don't know anybody that would say no to that. So I think just, you know, really utilizing any network of people you have is really good. And if you have access to a couple people, you can see how different styles work for different people. And then you have to have kind of a portfolio, you know, take pictures of your work. Once you have feel like you can braid just about any main, you know, then start advertising your services. Well, that leads me into my my last question for you, Ashley. And since you just mentioned advertising, what kind of startup costs would you say are affiliated with becoming a braider? You need very minimal supplies. So you need some kind of braiding yarn, a crochet hook, a comb and a water bottle and a step stool. That's about all you need. And then you just need a lot of time and patience. Of course, there's, you know, little things that you might pick up along the way. But I would say that that is probably the bulk of it. So it's a very little startup cost. The greatest cost is your time because time isn't free. But yet to be able to be paid for your time, you got to put the practice in. Absolutely. Well, Ashley, I'll be sure to link your Instagram account, which is how I met you. I'll link that in the show notes. So if anyone wants to reach out to you and learn more about braiding, they can do so there. That sounds perfect. Thank you. Awesome. Well, thank you, Ashley. So next, we're going to move on to Gwen. Now, Gwen is a tax accountant and pet sitter. So I'm excited to hear about her story today. And personally, I travel a lot. So Gwen, I'm excited to hear from you because I have to hire pet sitters all the time. And I've often thought, well, wouldn't it be cool if I could do pet sitting? But who am I kidding? I'm on the road too much. (laughs) So, So Gwen, tell me a little bit about your pet sitting business and how you do that as a side hustle. Yeah. So actually it started when I was really, really little because I've always loved animals and my mom is really, 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 really allergic to everything. So growing up, we had a rabbit that lived outside, but you know, I wanted a horse and I wanted dogs and cats and and we just couldn't have them because she would die. So I really like was just obsessed with everybody else's animals and, you know, a little like eight-year-old girl, you know, petting everybody's pets and my mom's friend would be like, oh, you know, we need somebody to walk our dog or watch our cat, you know, feed our cat while we're out of town, things like that. So it started when I was really, really young, just doing things like that. And then in high school, when I got my license, I started doing it a little bit more seriously and starting to take care of people's dogs and stay at people's houses overnight when they're out of town and things like that. And I've just been kind of doing it on and off since. So you just said when you got your license, is there an actual like pet sitter license out there? Oh, no, I meant when I when I got my driver's license and could drive my people's houses. (laughs) I was like, wait, you're serious about this business. (laughs) No. (laughs) Well, so I love this. Now, I'm sure there's many different aspects of pet sitting. I'm sure there's pet sitters that only sit certain types of pets at certain, you know, places. They only drive so far. So 
What do you think is like the ideal situation when it comes to operating as a pet sitter for your side hustle? Yeah, it really depends on your setup. You know, I have a horse and I have two dogs. So uh, luckily, I, you know, I live with my fiance, so we can kind of manage. Sometimes we'll have dogs come over to our house. If they're dog friendly, we have really friendly dogs. So, you know, they just tire the dog out. We don't have to do any real work. It's great. Um, you know, some dogs don't get along with others. So then I'll go stay at their house and then my fiance will stay here and take care of our dogs. So honestly, I'm really lucky in that, you know, there's two of us so we can kind of manage it. And then we split the income because obviously I couldn't do it if he wasn't here taking care of our dogs. So that's a factor. So I know some people who only have pets over at their house. Um, I have a friend who pet sits though, and she doesn't have, uh, she lives in an apartment that doesn't allow pets. So she only goes to people's houses and things like that. And yeah, it really depends on what you're interested in. I love all animals and I'm totally willing to learn and, and try new things. So I've I've pet sit for, you know, horses, donkeys, goats, sheep, a gecko once, chickens, you know, I'm down for anything. I say one piece of advice for anybody thinking about getting into it is definitely decide what you're interested in. If you only like dogs or you only like cats, you only want to do horses, make sure that you establish that, especially because like Ashley said, a lot of businesses spread through word of mouth. You know, I'll have one client and then she tells 10 friends because everybody's got pets. So make sure you set that up up front so that people aren't expecting you to do something. And then the other thing is, is be really honest about what you know. You know, if the first time I sat for a gecko, I was like, I don't know anything about geckos. So I'm willing to do it, but you have to teach me everything. The mistake I see a lot of people make is they're like, oh yeah, I can, I can probably do that. I can probably give that cat his shots or I can probably get this dog to eat this medicine, you know. And just, just be upfront about it. Owners are totally willing to teach you if you don't know, uh, or maybe you're not the right fit. And that's also fine. There's plenty of other opportunities out there. Oh, for sure. Well, I'll speak from experience as someone who has hired pet sitters. There's definitely different pet sitters that are a better fit for your situation. I've had family members pet sit. I've had neighbors pet sit. Not right now I have a neighbor and she's my only pet sitter that I ever use. But I can tell you what, I knew she was the one for me when I pulled up my pet cam. I have a security cam. I have three pet cams in the house. (laughs) I pulled up my pet cam one day when I was traveling and I knew she was coming. And so I, I got a notification that there was some activity and I saw her petting my cat on the couch. Now, my cat is 18 years old, so she's very special to me. She's a senior cat that I've had her entire life. And the pet sitter was petting her and she got up from the couch the pet sitter did. And she turned around and looked at my cat again and then went back for more pets. Like she, she was like, oh, I'm not done petting you yet. And it was <laughs> the cutest thing ever. And I just knew I was like, this is the pet sitter for me. I like I never want to lose her because my cat loves her. <laughs> for sure. For sure. And those things are important because, you know, these are our babies we're talking about, our fur babies, and we want them to be well taken care of. So stuff like that is really important when it comes to being someone's pet sitter. For sure. And so, I mean, sometimes it doesn't work out. I had a dog that I that I used to walk in college for a few months and I ended up telling them, you know, it's just not going to work out. He hated me. I don't know why. I took it a little personally, but I've never had a dog just hate me before. And he just he would let me walk in, but he did not want anything to do with me. I was like, I think you could find a better fit for this one. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So in terms of rates, I've actually seen people ask this question on Facebook. I've even seen it in the Horse Radio Network auditor's room where people say, okay, I need to hire a pet sitter, but I don't know what to pay them. 
especially for someone who's never done pet sitting before. They're trying to hire someone. They don't know what the good rates are. Can you shed a little light on what someone should expect to be paying a pet sitter and what you can expect to earn from it? Yeah, sure. I think it definitely depends. You know, all my clients pretty much have different rates because they have, you know, they're different distances away, which is definitely a factor. You know, how complicated it is. I have one client who just has the one cat, but he's he's also like at late teens. He gets a lot of medicine. You know, I got to check on him a lot. He makes a lot of messes because he's older, you know. So it's just, it's hard to just be like, this is the amount that you would pay. So usually my rates start for like one pet that I'm either staying with or staying at my house is going to be between like 40 and $50 a day. And that's probably going to gonna change depending on your region and things like that. But then it can vary, you know, if there's, you know, an extra dog, I'm not going to charge twice that, but it's going to be more expensive than one dog. And then if they have special medications, special needs that might, you know, bump it up a little bit. But then it won't be as expensive. You know, I have one person that I help out sometimes who has two dogs and three horses and I do everything. And that's like $100 to $120 a day just because I'm there. I stay there. I take care of everybody at once. So it's not like a lot of moving pieces. But if I were to charge her individually for each pet, that would be a lot of money. (laughs) So it, it really depends. But also, you know, when I was doing this for fun in high school, it was like $20 a day regardless. So hopefully mm-hmm. take into consideration the person's skill level and experience level. And, you know, just ask. I'm really flexible. I prefer if people ask, you know, what are you charging? I'm like, well, for your situation, because of X, Y, and Z, I would charge, you know, $50 a day. Is that okay with you? And if they're saying, okay, well, you know, because of X, Y, and Z, I was hoping for more like 40, like we can, we can meet somewhere in the middle. So definitely just tell them what you're comfortable with. And, and if that's completely out of their budget or, or you're completely out of their budget, then just move on. There's other options. Mm-hmm. And I think that how much time, like you were saying, how much time you spend at that person's place or taking the pet into your place is absolutely a factor. And full disclosure, my pet sitter is my neighbor. She comes once a day when I travel, which is fine for the, the animals that I have. I have a house cat and a rabbit. So they really just need one visit a day. So I pay her $25 per visit. Now, that might be going up soon because I'm about to be traveling a lot more and I need someone to be administering fluids to my cat on a weekly basis now, like once a week. So that that becomes more specialized. Like I do have to teach her, but she's willing. So there are things like that that, you know, I definitely have people that would have never considered doing that. And full confession, my husband's going to be home when I'm traveling, but he does not want to do the needle stuff. So <laughs> I, I don't blame him. <laughs> so, you know, like, all of those are factors. But my other question for you is, obviously, gas prices have been insane lately and travel is a factor. So how do you kind of build that into your pricing structure when you're determining if for someone that wants to go to a person's home and pet sit there, how do you factor in like the travel aspect of it? Yeah. So usually, you know, I'll charge. So for example, if I'm charging somebody $40 a day for their dog to be at my house, then if they instead want me to go to their house, then I would charge $40 a day plus, you know, however much it's going to cost in gas, five or $10. And then again, just be really upfront about it. So, you know, people will text me and be like, Hey, I'm going out of town these dates. Do you have availability for that? And I'll say, you know, yes or no. But if yes, you know, because of the current market and things like that, you know, this is my rate. 
And if you're not comfortable with that, you know, I have some friends that I can recommend who are maybe a little bit closer. But honestly, a lot of people, I've personally had some bad experiences with pet sitters, and I would honestly rather pay more for for somebody that I know and that I trust and who's who's been there before. So a lot of people are like, yeah, that's fine. I'll pay an extra, you know, 10, 15 bucks to, to have the same reliable person that, that I've had positive experiences with before. So just make sure to be upfront about it. People don't want to, at the end of your visit, be, hey, how much do I owe you? And it's, you know, $50 more than they were expecting to pay. Absolutely. Well, I totally agree with you. I would dish out extra money for my animals comfort any day more than I would my own. <laughs> and I think a lot of us can agree with that. <laughs> yeah. Well, Gwen, I'll be sure to link your contact info in the show notes. So if anyone has questions for you about starting a pet sitting business as a side hustle, or maybe they're in your area and they need a pet sitter, I'll be sure to link those so people can get in touch with you. So thank you for sharing and being here today. Thanks, Mandy. All right. Next up, we are going to Madison. Madison is a barn manager in Georgia, and she has a side hustle that she is really excited to share about. So thanks for being here, Madison. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your side hustle? Thanks for having me. My side hustle is I'm the Georgia customer representative for Enviro Equine and Pet. And I found it on Yard and Groom because I was looking for a remote job within the equestrian industry that I could continue to have a job without moving because I bought a house a couple years ago and that changed a lot of stuff for me. I used to move wherever the job was and live on a farm so that like buying the house really changed what kind of jobs I could get. So when I found Enviro Equine that they were hiring, uh, you know, for different states and they didn't have anyone in Georgia yet. And I, I've groomed a lot and I manage a barn now and I'm not super competitive. Like I love my horses and I love riding, but kind of like you, Mandy, like trail riding is where it's at. I like a nice lazy trail ride. And so for me with horses being like my passion and my bread and butter, their nutrition and health has always been my top priority. So finding a company that had like all of those things in mind as well, and they have a lot of organic ingredients in their products, which being an ag major, uh, I was really happy to see that to just help our environment out. And one thing I really like that they do is they sell refill bags. So, you know, you buy these big containers of electrolytes and balancers and then you just buy the container over and over again and as horse people we love to hoard containers but eventually you have enough and so I really like that we can offer it's usually about 10 bucks less to get the refill bag you keep your container and refill it so I love first and foremost that this is a remote kind of opportunity because I do think that people are definitely especially nowadays looking for remote opportunities versus going outside of the home and doing things. So our first two side hustles required, you know, leaving the house. Well, in Gwen's case, her pets come to the pets come to her house. So it really depends. But pet sitting might have you leaving the house. Braiding will have you leaving the house for sure. So what does a day in the life of your side hustle look like for you? So we do actually do farm calls. One cool thing is that I get to meet a bunch of people and see their farms. I can do a phone call, which sometimes just because of people's horse show schedules, 
works out better. And I can just kind of discuss what their feeding plan is and see if we have anything that might be better financially, or maybe they are feeding two or three supplements that one of ours is all in one. So they have less things taking up their feed room shelves. So I go to work early in the morning and I'm off like early afternoon. And then that way I have time to either go meet with somebody, have a Zoom call, or on the weekends, I go to horse shows and can talk to people. The barn that I work at, sometimes I groom, depending on how many people we take to a horse show. So I can like wear my Enviro equine hat and just kind of try and chat with people here and there. I bring samples of our shampoos with me to the shows and it's an easy way to say hey to people who I haven't seen in a while and just see what they're up to. Or if somebody needs something that I'll be like, oh, I'll be at the show on Saturday. Like I can put in your order then. No problem. With what you're doing, did you ha- need to have any type of like sales experience or nutrition experience? Because it sounds like you, you're doing a little bit of both, both sales and nutrition. So did that kind of role require you to come into that position with experience? So they don't require it per se. I will tell you that the girls who or some of our reps who have had sales experience are better than me for sure. But we're a pretty cool community. We all talk to each other. And like the girls in other states, we all chat and kind of give each other feedback. And actually part of what the company does for us is every week, We have an education call with one of the companies that supplies one of our ingredients. And sometimes it's with vets, sometimes it's with one of their reps, sometimes it's with a nutritionist. And so even if you don't have a ton of knowledge in one area, you're going to gain it pretty soon. Were there any types of startup costs affiliated with this or did you just jump right into the sales rep type of role without needing to invest much? I did not have to invest anything except for my time. So I spent a lot of time trying to learn the products as best as I could, even before I finished my interview process to make sure that it was something I wanted. And I actually called a friend of mine who works as an equine nutritionist, has her PhD. And I was like, what do you think of these products? And she loved it. So yeah, I mean, I invested a lot of time making sure this is what I wanted to do. And then once I got the job, making sure that I was prepared to talk to someone about it, but there was no cost. Well, perfect. It sounds like it was easy to jump in, but time is money, as we've been saying too. So it's definitely something that is going to take a lot of time to jump in and learn, I'm sure. So speaking of time, do you foresee this growing into something bigger for you? Is this always going to be your side hustle? How much time do you spend doing it right now? I've got a lot of questions in terms of like, where is this going for you? (laughs) I would say for like the first three months. So I started in February and that was a lot easier. Like I could get meetings pretty quickly because either people were coming back from Florida because I live in Georgia. So it's pretty close. Either people were coming back from Florida and just like chilling and finally not at a horse show or I was meeting them at events. Like I went to Equine Affair in Ohio and met some people from Georgia. And now I mean, if I don't meet them at a horse show, I pretty much am not going to get any time with them because everybody's horse showing constantly right now. So it just depends. Some weeks I might spend every day that like once I get off of my other job, 
I might spend every day doing something for Enviro. And then some weeks I have like two days, like the weekend I'll go do stuff. So it sounds like the schedule's up and down based on the season more than anything. Yeah. And like, it's all your personal, like how much do you want to work on this? It's like being a realtor. So I would like in like a year for this to potentially be my main source of income. It's commission-based. And so obviously if I don't work very hard at it, then that's the outcome that I get. So my husband's a realtor, so I totally get that reference. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I can always give more hours to it if I want. For sure. So are they, is EnviroEquine actively looking for more reps right now? We are. I know we're trying to hire for the Carolinas, but I'm not sure all the other states right now. I think we need New York. Someone in New York, too. Well, I'm in New York, so maybe I can help. (laughs) Very cool. Well, we'll be sure to link EnviroEquine's website in the comments and your socials as well, Madison. So if someone's interested in pursuing this as a side hustle, they can go ahead and connect with you. Thanks. All right. We are moving on to our fourth and final guest who's here to talk about side hustles today, and that is Sally Batten. Sally, welcome back to the podcast. You were on episode 24 with us. So thank you for joining me once again. Glad to be back, Mandy. It's great to see you and hear you. Absolutely. Well, I was stoked when you reached out and said, hey, I've got a cool side hustle because I, of all people, I didn't expect Sally to have a side hustle. So right. when she told me what it was, I was like, oh, this is really cool. So Sally, share with me a little bit about, you know, obviously we know you from Athletic Equestrian, anyone that's listened to the previous episode or knows who you are already, which is your main business. But tell me a little bit about your side hustle. Right. It's kind of like, like I don't have enough going on already, you know. (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) (laughs) So mine is being an equine expert witness for equestrian law cases. That sounds very fancy. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And not something I would think of as being a side hustle. So you're going to have to explain a little bit more about what goes into that. Because when I hear law and cases and words like that, I think, well, there's got to be schooling and some education that goes along with that. So let's dig into that a little bit deeper. Okay. Well, just like if you've ever watched a law show on TV, they have usually medical expert witnesses, right? Because a lot of cases are, you know, clients suing because of a malpractice or that sort of thing. So that happens in the equestrian world too. So when there's an accident or a horse got loose and ended up getting hit by a car and those people in the car were injured. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of different scenarios. Trail riding places is very common. Like the ones where, you know, a a winter ski area offers trail riding in the summer or something like that. So the attorney contacts me and is looking for someone that can speak to kind of the negligence of, you know, the business or the person or whatever. So how I got started was, I think it was back when I worked at Centenary in New Jersey, or it might have started when I was working at Dartmouth. I was the head coach of the Dartmouth equestrian team for 30 years, but a lawyer just happened to call the equestrian center and say, you know, I have this equestrian case. Do you know of anybody that could (laughs) offer 
some expertise on this. And I said, hmm, I think I could. (laughs) What do you need and what does it entail? So typically the attorney would contact me. We would meet, you know, if it was local, either in person or just over the phone or by Zoom. And I would find out what the case was. And most of the time I could take the case. Occasionally, if the attorney was representing someone that was negligent, I would say, I'm sorry, your client is at fault. I can't represent them. So that's kind of how I got started. Well, that's really interesting. What kind of experience in the horse world do you think is required to do that kind of thing? Right. You do need to have something, whether it's not necessarily a degree, but my resume was attractive because I went to college and majored in equestrian studies. I also got my master's, so they like to see higher degrees too. I got my master's in communications. And then I was uh, director of riding and equestrian team head coach at Dartmouth College. So even though being an Ivy League coach isn't any better than being a riding instructor somewhere else. I think as far as the legal people, it, it probably does sound a little better, you know? So, so I think that, that my particular qualifications and my resume is really what stood out. And then on top of that, I'm a writer. So you, you have to be able to write and you have to be able to read the depositions and read all the information and and also be very familiar with, you know, you have to cite publications and, and you have to have a lot of things backing it up. So you do need to be able to write also. It sounds like being articulate is part of the job requirement when it comes to doing something like this. Definitely, definitely, because you also could have the possibility of having to go to trial. All of my cases, I don't do it very often, but I've probably through the years maybe done 20 cases. None of them have ever gone to trial. And my attorney and client has always won. So it's been great. (laughs) That is great. So who pays you, Sally? How do you get paid doing something like that? I get paid by the attorney's office. So Uh, If you're familiar with personal injury attorneys, they don't get paid up front. They get paid a percentage of the claim. So if an award comes in just to be crazy, you know, at a million dollars, the lawyer gets a percentage of that. I don't know exactly how much. So it's the attorney's office that is paying me, which is great because we all know in the horse world, sometimes it's hard to get paid when you submit your invoice. But as far as an attorney's office, you know, I could put down, it's my time for the phone call. So even if I reject the case, I get paid for taking the phone call. It's my time for reading all the reports. It's my time for writing the report. It's my time for going to the office if we have to prepare for a deposition. I've only actually had to go into deposition one time. So that takes many more hours in person than just the average phone call. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So how do you sign up to do something like this? Do you just (laughs) call up your local attorney and and be like, hey, I'm available? (laughs) 
<laughs> well, yes, you know, you could do that if you're if you're not like I said that first time it was just somebody calling Dartmouth Equestrian Center, right? I believe also there is like a national clearinghouse for expert witnesses. I've never had to do that. I've always been word of mouth, but you can get listed at different, you know, expert witness clearinghouses or or whatever. And I, I don't think there's any cost for that to you. I haven't done that myself because I retired from Dartmouth in 2019. And as you know, I've been concentrating on all my equine entrepreneur businesses. So I haven't reached out and gotten on any of those lists, but it just so happens that my husband is a retired attorney. So he knows all of the places to go and people to talk to. But when I first started doing it, I I was not with him. So Ah, so you wanted to you wanted to be clarify that like he was not yes. your shoe in the door when you no. got started. <laughs> I'm like that too. My husband doesn't get credit unless it's due. <laughs> Although let me let me tell you a, a little aside. I had actually done a case for his law firm and was working for his his partner at the law firm, and then five years later, some friends were like, "Oh, do you know Ed Van Dorn?" I said, "Yeah, I did a case for him once." So we connected. And that's how we started dating. So his law office was a a personal connection. It kind of worked the other way around. Oh, that's too funny. And on a personal note, didn't you just get married recently? Yes. Yes. I thought I saw that on social media. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, (laughs) we've been together for uh, almost seven years, but we just invited our friends over for a party. And then we're like, surprise, (laughs) we're getting married. That's amazing. Yeah. I love that. There were there were people I just saw your face, uh, Madison. There are people like that with their jaws open. Some people were crying. I mean, it was all across the board. Yeah, that's oh. hilarious. I love that idea. <laughs> what a fun experience. Well, Sally, where do you recommend people go if they're looking to get started and they don't have the attorney connections? Where do you think it's a good place just to go to kind of start looking into doing something like you're doing? Well, I, I would suggest just Googling you know, expert witness and and see where that takes you. But I do want to tell you how much this pays. Oh, yes. If you would like to disclose, please do share. (laughs) All three of you might fall out of your chairs. So the normal rate is $350 to $500 an hour. And if you have to do a like, go to trial, it can be from $1,500 to $2,000 a day. We're all sitting quietly because we're just sitting here with our jaws. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> I think you win the yeah, side hustle. <laughs> so, so normally what happens is they give you a retainer. So they give you a chunk of money and then you work your hours against that. So it is really good money. And it's for me because I'm used to doing them and I'm a writer and I'm good at reading. You know, it's it's fairly easy. but you do have to have, like when you were asking the others about what are your startup costs? I'm like, hmm, college degree, <laughs> uh, professional, you know, you couldn't be a kindergarten teacher and be an equestrian expert and just be a rider. You know, you have to have some kind of credentials. Yeah, I do think that's important to know. But I am I am sure we'll probably have some listeners who are like, well, I got a degree. I'm not really using it, you know, whether they're using it or not. And this could be a great shoe in the door for them to boost their income. Right. Absolutely. I love that. Well, 
Thank you, Sally, for sharing. I guess we saved the the highest income <laughs> based side hustle for last. So that was a great way to end things today. But I wanted to say thank you again to everyone for being here. And we will be sure to drop everyone's links in the show notes. We didn't go through all of that during the episode, but they will be in the show notes. So if you are listening to this episode and you're interested in connecting with any of these ladies today who have shared information about their side hustles, be sure to check that out. So thank you all once again for being here. There are so many great side hustles out there for anyone who's looking to make some extra money on the side. If you or someone you know has a great side hustle idea for equestrians, I'd love to hear about it. Hit me up on social media at The Leadline Podcast or leave a comment on this episode's blog post at theleadlinepodcast.com slash 42. Remember, whether your goal is to turn your side hustle into a full-time business, or maybe it's just to earn a little extra cash, there are plenty of side hustles out there to suit your needs. Thanks for listening to today's episode, and I hope you'll tune in again soon. I'm Mandy, and I'll see you next time.